listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen to our podcast today. I've been teaching through the book of Hebrews on Wednesday nights in our church, and last night we dealt with Hebrews chapter 7, and and I dealt a little bit with this whole idea of particular redemption, and it's a difficult doctrine that most evangelical Christians bristle against. They they don't like it. Um, It's one of the doctrines of grace. It's the whole idea that Jesus did not die for the entire world, every single person who's ever lived or will live, but that Jesus died only and specifically for the elect. That's a very hard pill for a lot of people to swallow. And so the question then becomes, okay, where do those who hold to particular redemption, those who hold to limited atonement, and I don't, I don't like the term limited atonement because I think the word limited is confusing. I prefer the term particular or definite atonement. But where is this taught in the Bible? Because most evangelical Christians, if you were to ask them, who did Jesus die for? Their immediate answer is going to be, well, obviously Jesus died for the whole world. John 3.16 says God loved the world, that he sent Jesus to, to die for the world. Jesus died for the entire world. And we just kind of take that at face value when we believe it because that's what we've been told our whole lives. But I want to challenge your thinking in this podcast, and I just want you to consider one particular aspect of Christ's work on the cross and what he's doing right now. One of the major components or arguments of the book of Hebrews is the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. Chapter 7 argues that he is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And I don't need to get into all of that right now. And it goes on to discuss how Jesus is our great high priest. And so we have to ask a very basic question that the book of Hebrews asks. What relationship is there between Jesus making atonement on the cross and Jesus making intercession for sinners? And so we've got this passage of Scripture that links together the atoning work of Christ on the cross and His interceding on behalf of His people. And so what I want to draw your attention to is Hebrews chapter 7, and I want you to look at verses 23 and 25. The writer of Hebrews is basically making the argument that Jesus is our great high priest, unlike any human priests. And here's what he says. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that's Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost 
those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is able, he's powerful to save to the uttermost, completely, absolutely, comprehensively, who? Those who draw near to God through him. Why? He's always living to make intercession for them. So as the high priest, Jesus atoned for the sins of those who draw near to him. And he intercedes on behalf of those who draw near to God through him. And so this whole work of the priestly, the high priestly intercessory work of Christ is a doctrine that most, to be frank with you, most evangelical Christians don't have a clue about. We talk a lot about the life of Jesus, His teachings, His miracles, what He did while He was on earth those 33 years. We talk a lot about the cross, Jesus dying on the cross, Jesus shedding His blood on the cross, bearing God's wrath on the cross. We talk about the resurrection, Jesus springing forth from the grave three days later. And we talk about Jesus ascending back up to heaven. And we talk about the second coming of Jesus coming back to judge the world in righteousness. But we don't very often often talk about what Jesus is doing right now. Jesus is the high priest in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, because He has completed the work of atonement on the cross. It is finished. He sat down. But the Bible says He's always living to make intercession for those who draw near to God through Him. He's always living to make intercession so we have linked here jesus making atonement and jesus making intercession jesus making atonement for the sins of his people jesus making intercession for his people and this is not new to the writer of hebrews It's not new to the scriptures. There's other places in the Bible where this whole idea of Jesus making atonement and Jesus making intercession are linked together. We see it in Paul's writings and we see it in John's writings. In Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34, Paul basically says the same thing. Different type of context not so much focusing on the high priestly ministry of Jesus the way the writer of Hebrews does, but listen to how Paul explains this in Romans 8, 31-34. Paul says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? And here's where Paul focuses in. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Notice how Paul links the atoning work of Christ with the intercessory work of Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who died. He's the one who was given up by the Father for us. But at the same time, He's the one who is indeed at the right hand of the Father, 
interceding on our behalf. So the writer of Hebrews says Jesus makes atonement, Jesus makes intercession. Paul says Jesus makes atonement, Jesus makes intercession. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John brings up the same idea. John says this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus makes atonement for our sins. But it also says He is an advocate when we do sin. He is making intercession on behalf of those whom He has saved. Jesus makes atonement. Jesus makes intercession. Hebrews addresses it. Paul addresses it in Romans. John addresses it in First. John, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father making intercession as a mediator. But here's the question that we've got to ask. Let's let's discuss the controversial issue. Here's the question that we need to dig deeper below the surface and and ask in regards to the the, the relationship between Jesus' atonement and Jesus' work as the high priest in His intercession. So here's the question. What was God's intent and extent in the death of Jesus on the cross? What did God intend to happen in Jesus' death? And to what extent does that death go to? Or to ask in another way, for whom did Jesus specifically and particularly die but let's ask it in a way that links together jesus making atonement jesus making intercession here's the question does jesus make atonement and make intercession on behalf of the same group of people and if so then did he die for those who would never, ever believe upon His name. Did Jesus die for the entire world, and yet those who don't trust Him end up in hell? Does Jesus intercede for those who never believe in His name? Does Jesus make intercession for those who are in hell? So here's the question. If Jesus makes intercession for a group of people, then it's linked to that same group of people that He made atonement for. And so the question then becomes, if you believe that Jesus died for the sins of the entire world, every man, woman, boy, and girl who's lived and will live, who's ever lived, the whole world, if Jesus made atonement for every single person, then because of the nature of His high priestly office, logically, theologically, Contextually, if you, if you hold that view, then he must also make intercession for every single person who's ever lived. Because his atonement and his intercession are intrinsically linked together in one office as the high priest. 
Now, most people would say, I have no problem with Jesus dying for the sins of the entire world. Jesus died for the world. But then when you ask them the second question, well, is Jesus indeed interceding for the entire world? Is Jesus interceding on behalf of those who are in hell? Is Jesus at the right hand of the Father making intercession for those who've rejected him in hell? Most people would say absolutely not. But then what you've done is you've divided up his atoning work from his intercessory work And basically, you've cut the guts out of the whole theological concept of Jesus being our high priest. In other words, you can't disjoint or disunite Christ's saving work on the cross, making atonement from his interceding work in heaven right now. Can Christ die for every single person who ever lived and will live, and at the same time, intercede on behalf of every single person who lived or will live? even those who rejected him and who are in hell? And I believe the biblical answer is who he makes atonement for are particularly and exactly the same people for whom he makes intercession. Now, what's the identity of those people? It is those who draw near to God through him. In other words, it's only those who believe in Jesus. We could say it another way. Jesus Christ on the cross only died for the elect. Or you could say it another way. God's intention in the death of Christ was that he would die specifically and particularly for those whom the Father had given him before the foundation of the world and only those. And he in the right hand of the Father right now in heaven is only making intercession for those and only those, the same people. This is the Calvinistic view of particular redemption. And it goes counter to what most evangelicals believe, that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the entire world. Now what I want to do is I want to draw your attention to the role of the high priest, especially Aaron, the first high priest, in the Old Testament. Because you see two distinct things that the Old Testament high priest did in his office as high priest. He would make atonement for the sins of the people. He would make intercession for the people. Make atonement, make intercession. It was intrinsically tied together, these two acts, in the one office of the high priest. And the way this was illustrated was in the priestly garments that he wore when he would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the sins of the people. Now you may say, well, you're getting into some pretty intricate details here. Why why are we focusing so much on what the high priest wore when he went into the Holy of Holies? Well, God does not do anything by accident. God prescribed exactly what the high priest was to wear. And so we go back to Exodus chapter 39 and we find that there's this imagery that these prescriptions of what God tells Moses the high priest Aaron is supposed to wear when he goes into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the people and why he's supposed to wear that. So Exodus chapter 39, 6-7 says this, They made the onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold filigree and engraved like the engravings of a signet according to the names of the sons of Israel. 
And he set them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod to be stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel as the Lord had commanded Moses. So I want you to picture in your mind this ephod. It's this linen garment, this priestly garment that was worn into the Holy of Holies. It was only specially worn by the high priest. And on the shoulders were these two um, shoulder pieces that had stones of remembrance. And inscribed in these stones were the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Six on one side, six on the other side. And what does it say? The stones were a stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. Now, let's ask the question, is it like the priest walked into the Holy of Holies and didn't know that he was atoning for the nation of Israel? No, it's a, it's a symbolic way of saying when he entered the Holy of Holies on his shoulders, carried upon his shoulders symbolically, he had the particular names of those for whom he was making atonement, those for whom he was making intercession. We also find out in the Old Testament that on the breastplate of the ephod, the the stones were also to be embedded, 12 stones with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So think of the visual imagery here. He's got stones on the breastplate to show that these names are near and dear to his heart when he goes in to make atonement for them. They're also on his shoulders showing that he's carrying the burden of these people as their priest into the Holy of Holies. Now let's talk about the Holy of Holies and the high priestly ministry on the Day of Atonement. Only one day out of the year and only one man and that man had to make purification for his own sins, was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies and make atonement, make intercession on behalf of the sins of the people for an entire year. Your average Joe Blow Israelite could not walk into the Holy of Holies and draw near to God. The only way an Israelite could draw near to God was through the atonement and the intercession of the priest. The priest would pray for the people. The priest would make atonement for the people. And only the priest, that's the only way the nation could have their sins forgiven. It's the only way the nation could have access to God. And so we see from the Old Testament that when the high priest Aaron and his sons, when they entered the Holy of Holies, they were representing the nation of Israel. And they went in and they did two things on the Day of Atonement. They made intercession for the people. They made atonement for the people. Now the question then becomes, who exactly and particularly was the high priest making atonement and making intercession for? Well, the answer is easy. He was making it for the Israelites. Duh, that's, that's an easy question. He's, he's going in and sacrificing on behalf of the Israelites. And we have no problem with that. It's, it's not a big deal. He's got the stones of remembrance on his shoulders. He's got the stones of remembrance embedded into his chest. He is going in and he's particularly, specifically, discriminately making atonement only for the Israelites. Did he have the names of the tribes of the Amorites? embedded in his ephod did he have the names embedded of the egyptians or the philistines or the moabites in his ephod when the high priest aaron entered to do his duties on the day of atonement was he praying for was he making intercession for was he atoning for any other people besides the israelites 
The answer is no. He wasn't representing or atoning or making sacrifice or making intercession for the Amorite high priest. He wasn't representing or atoning for Pharaoh. He wasn't representing or atoning for the Philistines. And the question then becomes, well, why wasn't the high priest doing this? Because it wasn't God's intention. That was not God's intention. The atonement was not provided for the Amorites. The atonement was not provided to cover the sins of the Egyptians. And here's the point. If it would have been God's intention to do that, the, the atonement would have been more than sufficient to cover the sins of the Amorites, the sins of the Egyptians, the sins of all the pagan nations around them, if that's what God had intended for the atonement to do. The, the atonement that was offered on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament was of great value because it did cover the sins of the people. But its intent was not to atone for anyone else besides the Israelites. Now you can probably see where I'm going with this. We've got a type and shadow, a picture of the Old Testament high priestly office of Aaron and the Levitical priest going in on the Day of Atonement through the curtain into the Holy of Holies with the specific names of the tribes of, of, of Israel making atonement and making intercession only particularly, discriminately, for Israel. Now, the writer of Hebrews makes it very, very clear that Jesus has done the same thing. He is the high priest who represents His people. And on the day of atonement, the great atonement on Calvary, He went through not a man-made tent, not the physical Holy of Holies, but spiritually He atoned and made intercession in this whole idea of going through the curtain and entering into the, the, the Holy of Holies. He makes intercession, He makes atonement on the cross and right now in His intercessory work for the sins of His people. Jesus' death on the cross is of infinite value. It's more than sufficient to atone for and forgive the sins of every single person who ever lived. We're not discounting that. His atonement is of infinite value. It's more than sufficient to cover, to pay for, to, to, to absorb the wrath of, of every single person who's ever lived and who will live. But just in the same way that it was not God's intent to do that in the Old Testament... That's not God's intent to do that with the death of Jesus on the cross. God's intention in Jesus dying on the cross as our high priest is that the atonement is only efficient or effective for those whom Jesus makes intercession. And the question we've got to ask is, can that be every single person who's ever lived? Or is there a specificity to that? The text says it's those who draw near to God in faith through Jesus. So here's the question. Who will draw near to faith in God? Who will believe? If you go to John chapter 6 and John chapter 10 and John chapter 17, we find the answer. Those who draw near to God in faith, those who come to Jesus in faith, are those and only those whom the Father has given to Jesus 
before the foundation of the world. In other words, only the elect of God will come. So God's intention in Jesus' death on the cross as our high priest was to make atonement only and specifically for the sins of the elect. And Jesus now at the right hand of the Father only makes intercession for the elect. He's not interceding on behalf of those who are in hell. The same way that the high priest wasn't interceding for Pharaoh. He wasn't interceding for the the Amorite high priest. He wasn't interceding for the Philistines. In the same way, Jesus isn't interceding for those who aren't his people, who were not, who are in hell right now. So here's the issue. The Bible teaches that the Father elects certain people to be saved, to come to faith in Christ before the foundation of the world. Then in time, Jesus Christ died on the cross specifically and particularly for those people and is now interceding specifically for those people. And and, and the Holy Spirit applies that work of Christ to those same people by regenerating them, by effectually calling them, causing them to be born again, giving them the gifts of repentance and faith. And these same people will have faith in Jesus and they will be kept by Jesus forever. In other words, there's no division in the Trinity when it comes to securing the salvation of God's elect. Think about the implications if you divide up the the role of the Trinity in affecting our salvation and you really divide up Jesus' high priestly ministry. What if Jesus prays or intercedes for His people to be saved and God doesn't answer that prayer and give them to Jesus? That would be inconceivable, wouldn't it? That Jesus actually prays for something and he doesn't get it? What hope would we have that if we pray, God will answer our prayers? What if God elected a people and God gave a people to Jesus, but then when he died on the cross, he didn't die for anybody in particular. He didn't die for anybody specifically. He only made salvation a possibility, a hypothetical reality, with the the possibility that no one would ever believe and be saved. What if God gave Jesus a people, but then he died for the whole world with the, with the hypothetical reality that maybe nobody would ever come to faith in Christ? What if God elected a people, gave those people to Jesus before the foundation of the world? And let's say Jesus specifically died for those people, but think about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and he convicts and he tries and he woos, but he doesn't have enough power to actually bring those people to faith in Christ because it's really up to your will whether you are they going to be the final one to actually decide? The Father elects, the Son dies, but the Holy Spirit can only go so far. What if God looked down through the corridors of time to see who by their own free will would choose Him? And God looks and He sees people choosing Him and He sees people not choosing Him and He basically ratifies their decision. And then... God sends Jesus to die. And Jesus doesn't die for anybody in particular. He dies on the cross for everybody with the potentiality that nobody would ever be saved. And then God sends the Holy Spirit to convict sinners, but He really can't sovereignly regenerate them. He can only woo them and He can only convict, but ultimately it's up to you to make the choice. What would be the conceivable outcome of that? The conceivable outcome could be no one would ever be saved. Given the free will of man to choose, and given that Jesus only died to make salvation possible, hypothetical, he didn't really purchase anybody in particular, 
And given the fact that the Holy Spirit can only go so far, and He has to really respond to the sinner's choice before regenerating them, then it follows that there could be a possibility that nobody would ever be saved. Why are people saved? Is it because they're so smart? That they were smarter than others to accept the gospel? Or is salvation a Trinitarian work of God from first to last where the Father elects a people before the foundation of the world and gives those people to Jesus? Jesus comes and specifically dies for those people and intercedes on behalf of those people and then the Holy Spirit actually applies the finished work of Christ to those people and regenerates them so that those people and only those people will come to faith in Christ infallibly. There's no division in the Trinity. They're not fighting with each other. One one member of the Trinity is not trying to do something. The other person can't follow up. No, you've got perfect unity in the Trinity. And it's tied to the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, you may be asking a question. Why are there people suffering in hell right now if Jesus died for their sins? If Jesus died on the cross for the sins of every single person who ever lived, is living now, and will live, then why are there people in hell? Because what did Jesus do on the cross? Did He not atone for sin? Did He not absorb God's wrath? Did He not die in their place? And so if Jesus absorbed God's wrath, if Jesus actually made propitiation, if Jesus actually redeemed and bought and purchased and reconciled sinners to himself on the cross, then what you have is this whole idea that there are people suffering in hell right now and they're suffering what we would call double jeopardy. They are suffering for sins that were already paid for by Jesus. If Jesus actually paid for their sins once, why are they paying for it again in hell? Now, let me give you the typical response that's given. They would say something like this. Well, Jesus did atone for their sins. Jesus did die in their place. Jesus did propitiate God's wrath on their behalf. I guess Jesus did make atonement for them, but here's the reason why they're in hell. They didn't accept the gift that was paid for. He died for them, but they didn't accept the gift. The gift has been selected, the gift's been paid for, but no one can be forced to accept the gift. In other words, what they would say is Jesus paid for the gift of eternal life on the cross for the entire world, but many will not be saved because they chose not to accept what was paid for by Jesus on their behalf. In other words, what they're saying is the atonement doesn't really become activated or real or true for the sinner until they actually repent and trust in Jesus. And once they believe in Jesus, then the atonement becomes a reality. And so they go to hell because they didn't believe in Jesus. So let's stop and ask a question. If Jesus makes atonement for their sins and Jesus makes intercession for people that he died for then why are those people in hell right now because Jesus would be making intercession for them Jesus would be making 
atonement or had made atonement for them. And you're dividing up his office of his high priestly work. And again, they'll come back and say, well, you don't understand. I mean, obviously, Jesus is not interceding for people in hell. But, but basically, he bought, he bought their salvation. He died in their place. He absorbed God's wrath. But they chose not to accept the free gift. So here's what they're saying, whether they understand it or not. If you press them more deeply, basically, what they're saying is this. Jesus died for all their sins, but there's one sin that Jesus didn't die for, the sin of unbelief. So you ask the question, did Jesus die for every single one of our sins, past, present, and future? Well, yes, obviously the Bible teaches he died for all of our sins. Okay, but if you don't believe in him, is that a sin? Is, is unbelief a sin? Well, yes, unbelief's a sin. Hebrews says unbelief will send you to hell. So really, you're saying that then Jesus died for all of our sins except for one, the sin of unbelief. There's one sin out there that wasn't covered by His blood, and that is the sin of unbelief. Now, I'm going to give you an argument from John Owen. This is not originating with me. John Owen was a Puritan who wrote The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, a masterful work on particular redemption. And he has a whole section about this, but let me just distill it down to the three options. You're left with three options, basically. Here's the options. Number one, either Jesus died for all the sins of all men, or number two, Either Jesus died for all the sins of some men or either Jesus died for some of the sins of all men. If it's the last, if Jesus died for some of the sins of all men, then all men will have some sins to answer for. And in that case, no one would be saved. Here's how John Owen puts it. Quote, Why are not all free from the punishment of all their sins? You will say because of their unbelief they will not believe. But this unbelief, is it a sin or not? If not, why should they be punished for it? If it be, then Christ underwent the punishment, do it or not? If so, then why must that hinder them more than their sins for which he died from partaking of the fruit of his death? If he did not, then did he not die for all their sins? Here's the only tenable conclusion. On the intent, extent of the atonement based upon the high priestly ministry of Jesus. If Jesus died... For all the sins of all people, except unbelief, then he did not die for all the sins of anybody. And so everybody must be condemned. There's no other position except that he died for the sins of some people, the elect. And Jesus makes intercession and Jesus makes atonement for the same group of people. Charles Spurgeon preached a great sermon 
1858 called Particular Redemption. And let's let Sermon, I mean, Spurgeon speak from his sermon. Quote, this is Spurgeon. I have hurried over that to come to the last point, which is the sweetest of all. Jesus Christ, we are told in our text, came into the world to give his life a ransom for many. The greatness of Christ's redemption may be measured by the extent of the design of it. He gave his life a ransom for many. I must now return to that controverted point again. We are often told, I mean those of us who are commonly nicknamed by the title of Calvinist, and we're not very much ashamed of that. We think that Calvin, after all, knew more about the gospel than almost any uninspired man who's ever lived. We're often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made a satisfaction for all men or all men would be saved. Now our reply to this is that, on the other hand, our opponents limit it. We do not. There are many and say Christ died for all men. Ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? They say, oh no, certainly not. We ask them the next question. Did Christ die as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? They answer, no. They're obliged to admit this if they are consistent. They say, no, Christ has died that any man may be saved if, and then follow certain conditions of salvation. We say then, we will just go back to the old statement. Christ did not die so as beyond a doubt to secure the salvation of anybody, did he? You must say, no. You're obliged to say so, for you believe that even after a man has been pardoned, he may yet fall from grace and perish. Now who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why you? You say that Christ did not die so as to infallibly secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon. When you say we limit Christ's death, we say, no, my dear sir, it is you that do it. We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot be any possibility running the hazard of being anything but saved. You're welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of of it. The eloquent words of Spurgeon that get to the heart of this issue. Now there's many other ways that we could go about this whole idea, but one of the, the weaknesses I believe in the church today is we have not really studied the book of Hebrews. It's a difficult book. I'm going through it on Wednesday nights and each week as I'm doing study and, and, and uh, I'm doing it on a Wednesday night Bible study with about 30 people in our church and I'm also doing it in a small group on, on another night of the week uh, with the leaders in our church. And so I, I'm teaching it twice. And it's a very difficult book and most Christians have avoided it because of all the Old Testament references. And so we're very familiar with the book of Romans. We're very familiar with the book of Ephesians and Philippians. And there's a lot of New Testament books we're familiar with, but, but Hebrews just isn't on most people's radar screens. I would think that we would have a much healthier, a much more robust understanding of doctrine and the Christian life if we spent more time in Hebrews. And especially this whole theological truth of Jesus being our high priest. What are the implications of that? I mean, the writer of Hebrews spends chapter after chapter unpacking the nature of Jesus 
Jesus being our high priest. And if he spends so much time on that, then it's our burden to understand what that means, which means we've got to go back and do the hard work and look at the Old Testament and look at the Melchizedek priesthood, which was it's kind of a, a cursory in chapter 7. He just kind of shows up on the scene and disappears. You've got to go back in Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and look at the whole Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. Then you've got to just mind the depths of what the writer of Hebrews says about what Christ actually did on the cross. And so it's very important for us to never separate Jesus's atoning work from his intercessory work because he always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. And so those for whom Jesus makes intercession are those for whom he made atonement. Is it for the entire world or is it for only those whom the Father had given him before the foundation of the world? That's a question you're going to need to ponder. That's a question you're going to need to struggle with. It's a very difficult doctrine. It's not a popular doctrine. And you've got to ask yourself, is it the biblical doctrine? And maybe you've never been exposed to the high priestly ministry of Jesus. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. If you could do me a great favor by going to iTunes and giving us a review and a rating, it would really help us to have greater exposure. I'd love to hear back from you. Um, If if you have any questions or any comments or, or theological issues or even pastoral things that you want me to be praying about, I'd love for you to contact me directly. Um, you can go to my website, seancole.net. You can get all my contact information there as far as my Twitter and Facebook as well as my email address. Um, I'd love to interact with you and, and hear from you and maybe answer some of your questions on a future podcast. So thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. God bless you and have a great day in the Lord. 